Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Adam Ducker, Chief Executive Officer of RCL Co. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. It's August. We're actually recording this during the Olympics, and it caused us to think about one of the best minds in real estate, or really a collection of best minds in real estate, is our friends and close collaborators at the architecture firm Populous. Today, I'm talking to Earl Santee, Senior Principal and Global Chair. I'm looking forward to the conversation really about what we see as a very exciting emergence as venue or sports-themed or generated urban districts in the United States. There's all kinds of creative energy around not just the way in which sports venues are changing, but how the neighborhoods around them are not just changing to reflect the urban environment, the changing nature of sports and recreation, but also to address financing challenges and, and really to make the game day more exciting in the same way that the venue itself makes the neighborhood more exciting. So, Earl, thank you so much for joining. Maybe I'll let you do a quick introduction of yourself and Populous. I think it's a household name, but it can't hurt to share a little background and color. Okay. Well, on my side, I am a uh, senior principal. I am a founder of Populous. I have been on the board since 1992, so it seems like a long time ago. And I am currently the global chairman of our practice. So I have responsibility for all three of our global regions. The Americas, obviously, the EMEA, and then APAC. So I, I get to touch everything. I, interesting part about this job is I get to see how each region is different in its own culture and how we get work, how we do work, how people experience our buildings, the sites around them. Our company was founded in 1983. We are, I think right now, we're clearly the largest sports and entertainment design practice globally. Here in the Americas, we have somewhere around 350 people. Globally, we're over 700 people. Uh, our practice has been focused, and I'm sure those who may know us, our practice was focused in the past, specifically on sports. We we you know we were really the first focused design practice on a building type in America back in the early 80s. That has grown into a practice that is really now driven towards fan experience or consumer experience, both inside and outside of the building. And in the last, I would say, Adam, in the last five or 10 years, we have a really strong focus on how we connect or engage or plan communities, both inclusive of our buildings, but also impact our buildings. So uh, we do a lot of mixed use planning right now with with that, uh, whether it's sports or conventions or pick an entertainment source. And we've seen this kind of new next generation of changes relative to experiences that we've, you know, that we're looking at. We're doing a lot of music venues, theater venues currently, just because of how our culture's changed. And uh, it's it's been a really interesting, really interesting time. COVID, COVID didn't necessarily stop people from thinking about what's next. And I think that's been helpful for us. 
I do want to turn to venue districts or venue-driven districts in a minute, but we should ask about the Olympics. I know you and the firm have been very involved with it, really from the from the very early planning around the venues in Tokyo. So, yeah, so a lot of what we, we have an event practice, uh, at start. I think we started it in 1990, something like that. We've been planning the Olympics since then. Obviously, we, we plan all the major sporting events around the world. I mean, we, we do World Cups, we do Super Bowl, we do all the MLB stuff, and NHL, so on and so on. And the Olympic work for us, a lot of times we are brought on early on, either through the local organizational committee organizing committee or the International Organizational Committee, ILC, which some of that would be just to help local committees produce better buildings or produce better experiences for the customers coming internationally to those events. So, I mean, that's what we built that practice around. And so the amateur sports side of it in the Olympics has been a really key part of our the culture of practice. Any, any venues in Tokyo that you're particularly excited about? Well, we touched every all of them, but we didn't design any of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's way to put it. So a lot of the work was done uh, domestically in Japan. So we, but we were there to support both those design companies as well as IOC and making sure the buildings were the best they could be. I don't think the the coverage this year so far is focused enough on the venues. I love the backstory about the buildings. Yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot. That's been that has been interesting. Probably recall there was a huge controversy about the Olympic Stadium. Yeah, uh, it was designed by um, us, the female architect out of that unfortunately passed away from Iraq. Ah, indeed. Yeah, and what happened there was is a huge local and local uproar that she was hired to do the design, won the design competition, hired to do the building. And so they dumped that design. And I think that building was also pretty expensive. I think they dumped that design for something a little more conservative, but it's interesting how that all played out. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, I think it's, it's hard. I mean, in some ways you don't process the venue the same without people in the seats, right? And you, and you watch coverage. Like, uh, we, we only get we have one choice. We have to watch it on NBC or I guess USA Network carries it or the Olympic NBC's Olympic Channel. But you know they're really focused on the events, the purely the event side. You don't see much of the surroundings. You very see see any kind of crowd shots. Uh, they do these kind of. I know the swimming team has had a lot of the other swimmers in the in the building, but there you know there may be a hundred people that's supporting USA uh, in those buildings that. And they all have to be happen to be teammates. So it's been interesting to watch that. But uh, there's really been very, very little coverage of the actual architecture and how they function. Uh, in fact, they NBC does this really weird little map. It's kind of aerial map that uh, shows really the kind of the, the the campus for the Olympics, but it shows like just dots of where things may occur. But they actually don't show any architecture with it. They just show a red flag and say, here's where. The, the next, uh, here's the uh, beach volleyball competition venue. Yeah. It's, it's it's just been different than we've seen in the past. You know, much more focused on the broadcast side. You know, Hersioka has been involved in a number of Olympics and Olympic bids. The first one was Atlanta, where we kind of helped work on the Olympic Village, where the idea was really like, let's plan this to be something else in the future. Is that kind of like future use planning, particularly around the non-venue components? Is that still a big topic in some of the pursuits? Yep. And so a lot of our work early on was like, you've seen when we, we designed the London Olympic Stadium, and it converted from, what was it, 85,000 seats down to 60,000 seats. And so that was designed into the building from the get-go. So I think you're seeing more and more of, I think the LOC and the IOC is saying, look, we, we don't want to invest 
billions and billions of dollars in facilities that are, are not used by anybody in the future. So future-proofing the building so they can be useful is an essential part of our, our business going forward. Okay, and maybe last Olympic question. If you were going to design like one one venue for fun, <laughs> what would it be? What would be kind of an interesting challenge or something that's ripe for reinvention? Here's what's unusual for me. I think it may be just the coverage because we focused on the actual event. I really never paid attention to team handball until this this Olympics. I, I just watched it two nights ago, but, but is it getting more coverage? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I'm like going... I don't know why I've never saw it before. Or really, I probably did see it, you know, whether it'd been, it would have been overseas, maybe on TV, but it really, that was interesting. Uh, I, I really, I really have gotten intrigued with the kayaking part of it, which has been interesting to me. You know, Japan has its own unique challenges, given the fact that a lot of the water events are, they're not as controlled environments as we've seen in the past. So it's been interesting to see how that plays out. We've seen the surfing competition. You saw what happened there recently. I, I love the, uh, the start of the triathlon or the triathlon with the, they had, I think they have a, t- a TV boat or a camera boat that blocked the start of a race in the water. So those are interesting little bits, tidbits. From a venue standpoint, you know, I think our guys, we, we, a lot of the stuff is pop-ups, like the the beach volleyball venue, which is a very temporary building. Those are interesting pieces because you have to fit in very, very constrained uh, uh, sites. So those have been interesting to see how they, they play out and how they kind of fit within or then into this kind of overall campus. Well, I said that was the last question about the Olympics, but one more question about Japan, because I know you are particularly love baseball. Is the baseball venue in, for Japan different in any interesting way from the baseball venue in the United States? Honestly, I wish I could tell you. I have not seen the baseball venue. I know we have done. Uh, we I think we've worked on two or three studies for baseball buildings in Japan. And the only real difference is that you know their fans are much more engaged with game day programming is much more impactful to them than they, we have here in the States. I mean, they're, they have noisemakers around their feet. It's its own party, right? Okay, well, let's do transition to to what, you know, we've been working on back and forth and, you know, I hope playing some role in helping shape together, which is what we think about as, you know, venue anchored, you know, urban districts, urban mixed use districts. Can you almost like date the emergence? When in your firm's practice did, did people begin to say, hey, you know what, we're thinking about the neighborhood at the same time as we're thinking about the venue? You know, how when do you think that change happened? Well, I think I think that a lot a lot of it was early on, and I would say probably started in about 1995, but not in the way you were speaking of. 1995, it was almost to make sure that when we put a building in, that it would that it wouldn't impact, you know, it's a negative impact on the community or the or the transportation systems or parking or mass transit. And so probably 1985, and I think really the first one for us would have been the North Shore development uh, in Pittsburgh, where we had both the Steelers and Pirates being built concurrently. They also had a convention center project expansion going on at the same time. And so it's just a, a confluence of all three of those projects happening is on the impact. So we did do some plan, early planning on the North Shore from a mixed-use development standpoint just to make sure, okay, we put these two buildings here or else. I also believe that people over time realize that these urban sites, having a lot of parking lots around the urban sites invited uh, some opportunities that people weren't really focused on that we didn't necessarily need to preserve. The teams would say we need to have preserved parking. The downside is preserving parking means it's not experience side is not being 
fulfilled going forward. So that happened. And I would say after that necessarily, and I would say baseball probably drove most of it. After that would have been, we did a lot of early planning studies for Ballpark Village around the St. Louis Cardinals project, which would have been the early 2000s. Uh, that was pretty, that was fairly purposeful. And you had the Padres and you've had, um, you know, the list kind of goes on, on and on, but they tend to be just making sure that we, we the building where it's positioned that we would we would enable development, but not necessarily have development happen really in the immediate future. But in the, as future goes, five to 10 years down the road, the development could occur. And then I would say on the concurrent side, Petco is probably the first. I think that's right. That was the first one where I think people really noticed, hey, there was an urban form or at least a different kind of neighborhood that could emerge around a venue. I think that was really one of the early ones. Yep. And so really what we did is we converted uh, the idea of, of a baseball park to be more of an extroverted experience, not so much introverted towards the field. So having offices and the Omni Hotel across the street and having all these connections to what's surrounding it, I think enabled, well, actually it, it gave people incentive to develop these properties, not leave a, a, a parking lot empty. You know, they'd fill it up fairly quickly. And I think Petco was probably the, I would say Petco was the first. And I think as time has gone on, I think Truist Park has been, you know, it's been for us, at least as far as executed work, we do a lot of planning work, but from executed standpoint, Truist Park is probably the, the one that's probably the most dense development concurrent to a ballpark development. But there are many. I mean, we we did the original plan, a site selection and planning for Coors Field and Coors Field this year opened up McGregor Square across the street. So a lot of our early planning studies was just to give a platform for people to come in and do development. That whatever we did with the ballpark wasn't gonna wasn't gonna take away from potential of a development. Now that potential is is equally shared. They're hand in hand. The development and the ballpark are of equal importance and 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 our job is to find a way to both from a synergy standpoint, but from an integration standpoint, feel make them feel like they both speak the language of the community, the culture and, and the brand of of that area, but they create its own district and neighborhood that is unique to them. So would you go so far as to say or would you agree that it now seems like almost all venue exploration, even, you know, in kind of really suburban or exurban context, has surrounding land use considerations? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what, what's happened is that I, I think as we have we have now realized that we used to measure kind of fan experiences as being at really from the front door of the building, inside the building. Now we measure it by miles from the building. You know, a mile away, I may be parking or living and I'm walking to a ballpark or a stadium or an arena. So I do think that that, that mindset has, has changed dramatically. I would say that's really changed dramatically in the last 10 to 12 years. You know, I've heard the argument that some of the change was driven by more owners of teams that were real estate people. You know, so there was a, you know, an, an interest or a predisposition. You think, is there any truth to that? I think we have some owners that are interested in the development side, but I think a lot of it was once we kind of dug into the master planning of it, the development planning, that they saw the opportunity, you know, and, and not to say that they're not, they're in a lot of ways, uh, they're capitalists, but in a lot of ways, they're they're interested in, in broadening their brand and, and amplifying their brand throughout the community as strong as they can and, and show that they're, I do think there's much more community engagement by the team owners that they, they, they all firmly believe it's just, it's just not about baseball. You know, we're trying to build a relationship with the community that is purposeful and as and fulfilling, but at the same time, sustainable, something we that they could sustain over years to come. So it's um, it has changed. That dynamic has definitely changed. 
And that's every, it doesn't matter what size of venue, Adam. It could be a 5,000 seat minor league stadium somewhere. It's as important to them as it is someone that's building a Yankee stadium or pick something. You know, you're right. I mean, I think one thing that's very interesting in our practice is that we're doing a lot of work around, um, you know, minor league facilities, sometimes in quite small markets, right? But actually the potential impact in a market like, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which actually has a great little downtown around the, the ballpark is, or, um, you know, Toledo, Ohio, another great urban neighborhood around the ballpark. And then the other place where we're seeing a lot of activity is around, you know, USL and you know, second and third division soccer, which again, as in neighborhoods or rather in urban markets, which are just looking for that energy to, to drive the urbanization and the venue can be hugely, hugely impactful. Right, right. And I do think that's, uh, I think that's just, it's just a consistent language that we're dealing with now. I mean, I think we see uh, expectations that everybody wants to feel like whatever the building is fits that community, but conversely, the community has to embrace the facility, has to go both ways. So I do think that how we deal with the architecture, but the planning is most important. How we connect the buildings, how transparent, open the buildings, are, transparent and open the buildings are. How we activate the street is, you know, we're, you know, it's just not a blank wall that you walk up to. I mean, we have to activate the streets around these communities. So I think all that. Well, look, it's that's fun for us. I mean, that's. I mean, it, it, I know it's exciting for the team owners or the communities, but it's also fun from the design perspective because we have to be more creative than we were. 10, 15, 20 years ago. More understanding of what the community needs and wants. And that's why I think we work well together with you guys to, because I think it's important that we, you know, as you identify kind of the art of, of the possible, what could happen, our job is to try to find a way to visualize that. And so I think that's that's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I love the space because, you know, we kind of, we, we can acknowledge the complexity of markets, right? You know, you can't drop a football stadium in the middle of nowhere and expect a Chicago to emerge around it. <laughs> but, you know, you can drop a venue in a non-traditional neighborhood and it creates its own energy. And so we love the nuance of like, there has to be some reason to live there beyond the venue, but the venue can begin to create all these creative synergies that enhance or almost are like, you know, lighter fluid on all of the other forces of urbanization. So we, we always joke that, you know, markets drive real estate and real estate creates markets. And in the venue or in the districts, it's it's through to the nth degree. Right. Well, I think a good example of that is just with the Nationals project, you know, that was heavily planned over many, many years before the, that ballpark got built. And then you add the, the ongoing development, then you add the soccer stadium on top of that and the synergy between the two buildings, these two anchors. And I, I almost call it, you're right. I think the term is energy. The energy is created by these two anchors produces a lot of opportunities for folks to do development that is supportive yet responsive to the community. So I thought it's a good example. You know, it really is a terrific example. It's actually one we've done a bunch of research, partly with the, the neighborhood bid. You know, there would have been redevelopment energy in that part of the District of Columbia anyway, right? Like Metro had been delivered. The district invested a lot in, you know, regular civic infrastructure. There was a big federal building that relocated. But, you know, the nationals coming and anchoring the neighborhood, they really do anchor the neighborhood, you know, probably changed what might have taken 20 years to taking five or seven years. And I think that's a subtle but important story, right? That it's not like, it's not magic, right? You drop the venue and everything goes. 
But when you have this very carefully planned, you know, set of public and private investments, and then, you know, they did a lot of things right with the bid and the other things, it just created this transformative condition. Yeah. And I think that's, um, and I go back to what you said. So why didn't they do it 20 or 30, when you first asked the question 20 or 30 years ago, I think there was, all right, we'll build a ballpark or a football stadium and development will happen. Now we need to, we have to be much more careful on the planning side because we want development to happen. In a lot of ways, you you know, we'll initiate development prior to construction of the buildings, of the, of the woods building. And so it's almost like we're, we're, the fertilizer we usually just put in one spot, we take it and spread it around a four or five block area, you know, and it, it happens, you know, stuff happens. But it has this require you to be really smart about traffic, parking, pedestrian movements, visual impact, connectivity. You just have to have a really careful study of those those aspects to to embrace kind of a community. And even now with even more technology kind of helping us inform data that we use to design, you know, geofencing. These buildings can tell us so much more about how long people linger at a restaurant or a bar, what that day, what their event day looks like, whether it's you know a five-hour event day for them or a 10-hour event day. That's really informative to people that want to develop because they obviously could understand how they could they could utilize that to help support their the revenues they need for their buildings. How important, I mean, one of the things that that we that we experienced is as kind of conventional public financing for venues began to get more complicated, maybe even you know get very difficult to get the idea of either real estate development as a revenue generating or or capital generating activity to fund the venue or the the technique of value capture, just kind of looking at the change in neighborhoods and ability to sort of like create a TIF or other financing mechanisms to capture that value. I mean, has the need to rely on real estate to fund the venue, you think, driven, you know, a lot of the the, the kind of current venue thinking, which really does mix land use and venue? I would say in 80, 90% of the times it does. You know, there there are going to be some people that really are just still focused on being a building built. And we participate in a few workshops about this. There's a variety of new kind of incentive programs out there that can help us Think about it. Now, whether or not opportunity zones are one of those, uh, there are other, I think real estate is a main driver of really the capacity of communities to build projects. And I think politically and structurally within the, each of these communities, they see that it's more than just one building. That It may be coincidental, but it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it is purposeful. I think that's a real, has a, a much easier take from the community side that they would support something that's going to make a big impact to them. It's not about a team owner making a bunch of money. It's about creating a fairly interesting and engaging destination for everybody. That makes perfect sense. You know, we've talked about some of the transformative new districts in the in the United States, Washington, uh, San Diego. I guess a lot of times in this conversation, we think back to, you know, like Wrigleyville and the old legacy neighborhoods. Yeah. Any Anything that you're watching or you think is going to be exciting in the decade ahead? I think we're going through, going through a cycle. Okay, so what's next after the kind of retail entertainment model that we've seen? And you and I have had conversations about what's next. I do think we're going to see a lot more flexible entertainment venues uh, plugged into these into these communities. And flexible entertainment venues means that it's all about programming. It's what that market may want. It may be it's all size driven. It's all price driven. Whether it's music, entertainment, the arts, esports, you pick it. I do think we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, we are seeing more interesting private investment in the arts side of it, which has been interesting to me. And I'll say arts includes music. Uh, we're definitely seeing that's been the last year or two. Uh, we definitely are seeing more community based 
investments, which would be training centers, rec centers, pick stuff that people, it's open to all people, all all of the community. So I do think we'll see that. I, and I think we're also in a, you know, generationally, I think we're in a change where variety is the spice of life for some generations and especially younger generation. I think that we have to be mindful. It's not a one-stop shop. They're not going to be there just for one thing. So, you know, how we, we create a, an experience journey for those generations is very important. Again, it goes back to being very careful with your planning and being smart about what, what you should think about. You know, we've done a little writing on esports as an exciting, you know, very potentially very urban product type. And it's gotten, you know, our clients and friends very interested. You know, and the question we always get is, you know, does it have legs? How how big is it? Are we in the first inning or is it gonna be uh um, I should mix metaphors, is it gonna be a nine hole game? Do you uh do you have a take on that? Well, I think we're definitely in the second inning. I think the first inning started probably right before COVID hit. And right now, I'm gonna say it this is a global comment. It's just not United States. This is not a U.S. phenomenon. It's actually more in Southeast Asia. It's it's more phenomenon than it is here. But and the size of those buildings are bigger than they are here. I don't have a. I don't think right now we have any mixed use projects we're doing where there's not some kind of a flat a flex entertainment venue. Whether it's focused on esport or music or the combination or whatever it would be. I don't think there's any of the mixed use stuff. And it, size obviously matters based on the market location. But you know the the promoters of these of, of the, the games themselves, they have money. I actually recall you were with me. We were in LA, and um, we had someone bring up. You know, there, there there is a point in time where we're going to have to convert many many of our shopping centers because retail is changing dramatically. And how do you do that? And I think at that time, I think at that time we were saying maybe esport is one of those ways. I mean, the thing that's so compelling about it from an urban perspective, right, is, you know, as you point out, it, it can work for many different things. You know, you can kind of program it for, we always say for, you know, corporate meetings in the morning and esports in the afternoon and, you know, concerts after 10. So unlike some of the single purpose historical sports venues, like you can really use it a lot and it doesn't need so much, you know, light and exposure. So can be kind of internal to a mixed use project. It can be a black box, yeah. I do think we started to, we're starting to label it differently. I think we may call them performance centers now or performance venues. I think it may be where we've been pushing it towards because it's been um, which can include sport because a flex a flex building doesn't it's not very sexy. I mean it's not it's in every major city somebody's talking about it. You know, it's not just part of now the math that we have to use. You you mentioned it earlier. The other venue that that really does seem to to create a lot of development energy, or potentially does, is the kind of you know mixed use open air venues that can work for soccer, concerts, events, festivals. You know they're big, right? So they're harder to plan around. But it's been a big source of activity in your practice too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have. Well, we know soccer is taken. It's taken its push. It's it's. Um, and and typically soccer has been smaller, but the last this I'll say this next generation are bigger buildings. They definitely are much more flexible buildings from a use standpoint. And so we are seeing that you know they don't take quite the land mass that some of the other like an NFL stadium might take, but uh, they and they fit fairly well within the block structures we have here in the Americas. So they fit fairly well within those smaller block sizes. So they work pretty well. The open air stuff, we have seen a lot of open air entertainment venues. Typically, they're tied into it more of an entertainment district. But we have seen those as being something that has been a push. Again, it goes back to programming. In fact, I think that's why 
you know, I think we started this a couple of years ago, the whole geofencing thing, we kind of understand how people use a community, how they use the site, how long they, they whatever they do is important in forming how you, how you really take the properties and, and not only give great experiences, but produce enough revenue to support them. And I guess one last thought, you know, it seems like we're crossing paths some with people looking at the neighborhood surrounding and then these older arena venues themselves, which, you know, just proved like clunky and tricky buildings. They're hard to reinvent, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Especially now that music has become such a more important part of the arena experience. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, somebody would say that they're they're being designed for the music venue, the big for the music event and sports secondary. And uh, so it's really the convertibility. The, you know, the whole load-in, load-out time where how you do things is becoming much more critical because it, it's it's about making the building sufficient relative to that. And so I think we've seen, that's been fairly significant changes just in the last five five to six years. That's I would say we've seen more significant impacts in the arena market in the last five or six years. Just because of the generational needs and stuff that we've, that we've seen in other building type and sports at least. Well, switching gears a little bit, you know, we were chit-chatting around, you know, the joys of of running professional service firms during COVID. You know, whether that's in the rearview mirror or or not in the rearview mirror, what do you see happening, you know, new and different in your in your business over the next five, 10 years? What what challenges are you guys grappling with and, and excited about or nervous about? Well, I'm optimist, <laughs> first and foremost. But yeah, for us, I think we always should constantly be changing and evolving the fit the, our clients needs and you know whether you know we started in 83 as sports architects and today i think we brand ourselves as architects designers experience designers interior designers planners all the, you know a whole variety of stuff and i believe we're also future thinkers you know we're we're thinking about the next five or ten years not only for the buildings but really about experience experiences that folks would have. And we're spending a lot more time on data than we ever did. How, how, how the data drive design, how data drives marketing of our projects or the products within our projects, uh, much more heavily involved in, in anything we've ever done before. And it's been a fairly big influence the last two or three years. That's not going to change. From our standpoint, we're going to continue to adapt. I don't think we are not a static organization. And so we're, we're just trying to we're, by speaking about the future of sports, entertainment, about experiences, the more focused we are on that, we're generally our practice is focused on coming with the next idea, not the last idea. And so I'm optimistic. I think that the markets continue to change. Um, how we look at, I'll say, traditional architecture is going to change a bit. You know, how buildings are fabricated, constructed is going to change a bit, maybe a lot, given the, the workforce issues we have currently here in the States. You know, Adam, I think that uh, it is exceptionally exciting to think about the changes that could happen, creating new ideas, new places, not be complacent. I'm, I, if, I mean, if we hire young staff and we tell them we're, we're really thinking about the future and we want you to help us get there, they don't use the same limitations we have. You know, everything's open to them. And uh, that's been, honestly, it's been great to see how that's transformed our practice and we'll continue to transform it. You know, people have been asking this question for years or decades, maybe longer. Is cost going to drive a, a radical technology change in construction? In other words, are we going to, is it now getting so expensive 
that we're going to figure out meaningfully different ways to build venues, different materials, different instruction approach? Or is it just so hard to innovate that change will continue to be slow? Do you have a take on that? Yeah, well, what's happened is the design industry and the construction industry are now merging. So we're together. I mean, we're we're delivering projects together. And I think that even though some people would say that's, well, that's been around for a long time, it's much more connected now because we, we're, the technology bridges us together. And so from a technical standpoint, that's been going on for about four or five years. Construction engineers are doing their own shop drawings of the stuff that they do, and, and then they get fabbed, uh, fabricated from that. I, going forward, though, the, I think the biggest issue we have going forward is workforce. And so fabrication, prefabrication, it's going to change the construction industry. It's going to change the design side because we have to create the technology that helps them deliver those products to those places. And so that's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's already happening. We won't have a choice. I mean, it's not going to be a choice. Not only is it going to cost less, it's also going to guarantee your schedule better. And currently right now, the biggest issue we have is yeah, costs are way out of whack. No question about that. But the schedule parts are what's causing most of the grief on the industry. To get products delivered here, whether it's a computer chip or a piece of aluminum, it doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, the, the schedule side of the construction industry has been really hampered by just not only the pandemic, just a, a vir- by virtue of the fact we just don't have workforce to put stuff together. And so I do think that's that's here. That's not going to change. The pandemic did one thing for us. It made it clear we have to change how we deliver buildings from a construction standpoint. So on the topic of labor force, but a slightly different take, your, your business, I guess, like our business, you know, you're constantly trying to find the best talent and the terrific talent that you have. You're trying to keep them and keep them happy. I mean, it's harder than ever. Well, you know, maybe it's as maddening as ever. What are you, what are you doing that's effective or, or what are you thinking about doing, you know, to keep the best of the best of populace? Well, I mean, we've, we've, uh, well, let's see, we were on our 39th year, our 39th year. You know, we're, we've gone through it, which, you know, we've gone through transitional leadership transitions already. And so we have our next generations already up. They're running the practice. But we are, I would, I forget what our numbers are. I think over 50% of our staff's under 30 years of old uh, age. And so that's a lot. And so what they want is just the opportunity to, to be engaged in projects and they can learn from you know, their senior, other senior staff. They uh, clearly want more flexibility in both their work-life balance, but flexibility is a funny word. Flexibility may be also, I don't want to do the same thing each day over and over and over again. So it's a different animal. Uh, we haven't really decided about flexible work hours at this point. We're still, we've encouraged folks to come in. We work a lot in teams. Uh, we do a lot of our brainstorming together and it's uh, honestly, it's hard to not it's hard to do that. We, we need to do that in, in, in person because we feed off each other. And, and I, I know people that a lot of my um, friends that have their that maybe part of the financing financial institute, they said the same thing is that they feed off their staff. I mean, that relationship they have with the staff on a personal level is really important to their organization and culture. I don't know if that will change for us going forward. I think our culture is really important. We want to keep people engaged. We want to, we obviously want to make it fun, which I think if we can make it fun, it doesn't matter what generation you are. If you're working on something fun, you'll come together, you'll come to work, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be there. It's not, uh, not that's not going to change. But it is, um, we are seeing, and it's a very interesting dynamic between our older generations that work here versus our younger ones about of that that topic specifically. I think the younger younger ones tend to want to have more flexibility, but if they see an opportunity where they could really be engaged in something that's really exciting and fun for them, the flexibility becomes less important to them. 
Yeah, that, that certainly resonates with our experience. And um, you know, people care about money and they care about work-life balance, but particularly for the people who stay with us for a long time, really being engaged in exciting things, new things, making a difference, it's, it's a major part of a lot of people's individual calculus of value. Now, you have a, a, a truly global group now, which probably makes it even more difference is the energy towards more kind of more more places where you're present, a more globally disaggregated workforce or? You know, it just depends. It's a very strongly a cultural thing. Our, our Australia offices, which we had two in Sydney, one in Sydney, one in Brisbane, they never stopped working in the office. So they currently work they work four days with an optional day at home if you want it. But I think at some point they'll probably want to go back to five days a week. It's just a cultural thing. And believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It's not a generational thing there, purely culture. So we have, I think, seven offices in Southeast, in the Southeast, what we call APAC region. And each of the each of the offices are different. Some are, you know, New Delhi, they work 60, 70 hour work weeks because that's what they work, 60 or 70 hour work weeks. So that's different. EMEA is a little bit different because they're the design staff is the most diverse we have from a from a, a national media standpoint by far. It's, you know, I think only like 30% of the staff that work in our London office are from England. The rest, you know, I forget how many countries, like 21 different countries that work there. So it's a, its own unique model. They're back in the office. We're back in the office here in the, in the, the Americas. They have, they're a little bit more, they have flex, a little bit like us. If you, if you can work in the office, you will. If you don't, if you don't want to, or you know, if you can work from home, then you can't. So look, the pandemic is, is ebbed and flowed in such a way that I don't think you can make a final decision about anything at this point. You just have to be alert and aware of what's going on and then make the appropriate changes to uh, we still have to service all our clients. No matter what, we still got to deliver great designs, great projects, so on and so on. So that's still our mindset. And how we do it is by maybe a little bit different. We're trying to, we're doing the best we can to make this thing, keep our clients happy. Well, maybe one last question to wrap it up. You know, a personal question, like your, your perfect day, <laughs> you know, or your perfect, you know, like sports, you know, afternoon or evening out, what, what would you do? And one thing we have been doing lately, we've been doing a lot of um, uh, workshops with diverse staff, like 20 or 30 people. And I, that's, that's the, that question I ask all the day, all the time. I go, what's what's a perfect evening out? And uh, it is a very interesting. Uh, the older you are, typically it's just dinner. A great, you know, wine, steak, whatever. The younger, the younger generations, it's always been three or four things. You know, it's not one place. It's like three or four places. So it's been interesting. For me personally, a, a perfect day for me on the business side, a perfect day for me is to is to have a client says, I have a problem. I haven't had anybody able to solve the problem. And by the end of the day, we find a way to solve the problem. That that's that's really joyous for me because I you know, that's that just means we we collectively put our heads together and came up with a solution that works. On the, on the private side, my personal side, a great day for me is being in the mountains in the middle of a river, casting you know throwing a fly out in the water. So you know I love the peace and serenity that that gives me, and it allows me to. We all live a very very uh, full and uh, demanding lives, but it gives me the the piece I need to kind of recharge for the next time I have to come up with a, a solution to a problem that no one else can solve. That's it for me. Well, that seems like a great place to 
wrap up the discussion. Thanks so much for doing this. It's it's terrific. It is timely. It's fun to be watching the Olympics and be thinking about great athletes coming together from all over the globe and celebrating great venues. You can you can see a little bit the neighborhood context, not as much as I'd like. But I hope this conversation encourages people to kind of get out and see some of the great venue-driven districts around the United States or, or, or elsewhere and think about that in, in, in your daily business. So thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, Adam, for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's uh, This is fun. I look forward to our next, uh, next 12 months and see what we can get done. I love it. Hey, be well. Thanks again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCo. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.